0: Hey everyone, it's Andrew. I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. I know I say this almost every time, but I'm really excited about today's episode. Um, it's just very useful and very interesting. I spoke with Dr. Alan Braverman. He's a cardiologist here at Washington University who has a special interest in aortic diseases or aortopathies. These are diseases like Marfan syndrome, Lois-Dietz, or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Dr. Braverman has been described by some of his colleagues as the physician's physician Or the model physician. He's just very caring and spends a lot of time with his patients. And as you're about to find out, he's extremely knowledgeable as well. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Thank you for meeting with me today. Dr. Braverman, would you mind just telling, uh, saying your name and your title for me?
1: Thank you, Andrew, for inviting me. Um, my name's Alan Braverman, and I am um, a professor of medicine at Washington University School of Medicine, and I'm the alumni endowed professor in cardiovascular diseases in the uh, division of cardiology. Great.
0: Thank you so much. So I want to talk with you today about uh, aortic diseases or aortopathies. I know one of your interests. And to start that discussion, I want to present a case who I actually think you probably have seen this patient since you tend to get consulted on pretty much all of these cases in our hospital. So I recently saw this uh, 30-year-old white woman. She has a a history of a vertebral artery dissection and also fibromuscular dysplasia. And she presented actually earlier this year around the summertime uh, with a type A aortic dissection that extended all the way down to her iliac arteries. So big dissection. She, interestingly, had a very long history of hypertension, reportedly since age of 15. And she underwent an emergency surgery with a thoracic repair with a aortic valve replacement at that time. So when you talk to her and her family, there's this questionable history about whether there's any family history of any aortic disease. So her father suddenly died at age 41. There was no autopsy done. So it's a little suspicious that there may have been a dissection there. And then there was also a, father, a grandfather of, of that same father who had a heart aneurysm and we really, really don't know much more information beyond there. So her presentation, this young age thoracic aortic aneurysm, really heightens your suspicion for a genetic disorder. So, And there's a number of those. What might be further information that you would want to get to help you uh, to guide your suspicion about what kind of disorders we're talking about?
1: Well. She presents a very interesting case for several reasons. First, um, she's had long-standing hypertension, which is unusual in a 15-year-old. So always want to think about a secondary cause. And then she presented with a vertebral artery dissection and um, craniocervical arterial dissection, so carotid or vertebral dissections in a young woman would make you instantly think about fibromuscular dysplasia as an underlying encompassing disorder. Okay. So FMD or fibromuscular dysplasia um, is in the family of aortic or vascular diseases, um, but an underlying genetic trigger hasn't been well delineated for the majority. There's some, um, maybe a small subset where genetic defect may play a role, um, but but not well understood yet. Mm, Um, So fibromuscular dysplasia is predominantly women. Often presents young, often presents first with you know headache or stroke. These sort of things related to a cervical artery dissection, like a vertebral artery dissection. When there's hypertension associated with a person with that sort of disorder, you immediately think about it was were they screened widely. Mm-hmm. So, fibromuscular dysplasia can affect multiple different arterial segments, predominantly cranio cervical, but often. Abdominal with renal artery, fibromuscular dysplasia, and that can associate with hypertension. So I would imagine this woman probably had imaging of that beforehand and did not have that condition. Mm. And certainly when she had aortic dissection, it would have been looked at to say, okay, what do the renal arteries look like there? And you could say yes or no, whether there's evidence of FMD in other arterial segments. Gotcha. So so it could be that, that whatever she has has some component of FMD and you say, well, what about the dissection? How does that fit in a young person? Yeah, um, could d- Does aortic dissection go along with fibromuscular dysplasia? Not typically. Mm. If you look at the largest databases of FMD coming from centers like Cleveland Clinic that has a long, uh, a long history of interest in that disorder and have compiled you know, international registries of this condition with, with hundreds of patients now, it's a very small number that have aortic dissection and a very, very small number that would have a type A or an ascending dissection. So okay. still could be somehow, and maybe a new genetic syndrome here, or it could be it's not related, or it could be that the fibromuscular dysplasia was not accurate, that she had vertebral dissection and someone yeah. thought it looked mead-like or whatever, but it really wasn't. It was just that was her first presentation. So, but getting back to the point, what about this and and what about the family history? Could it all be just FMD? Well, FMD can be genetic and and running in families, but that's not the typical. And then you say, what about the grandfather and the father with this sort of not really known, but potential sudden death at 41 and then this heart aneurysm? So that's suspicious. So it makes me wonder, is it something more than just FMD? Um, And I would certainly look for genes associated with aneurysm disorders.
0: Mm -hmm. So just to recap, it sounds like there's possible that FMD could do this, but really we're going to have to make a lot of exceptions along the way to explain all these extra parts of our presentation to describe it purely all to FMD.
1: Exactly. I would not stop there and be comfortable to say, we can just explain this as an unusual case of FMD, don't look further. Mm -hmm. I don't think that would be a good choice.
0: Okay, perfect.
1: And as far as you say, well, You know, what what would you think about? You know, what disorders would you think about that can Mm -hmm. associate with a type A dissection in a young woman and an arterial dissection in a branch vessel that occurred beforehand? What connects those two? What disorders could do that? What phenotype would you look at? Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, some patients make it easy for us because they present with all the features which are recognizable. So when we think about a disease like an aortopathy, so a disorder of the, aor- a disorder of the aorta um, that can have a genetic underpinning, there are some that are syndromic, and syndromic mm-hmm. meaning they have outward features which are recognizable in multiple different organ systems different than the normal population. That would be a syndrome of conditions that also affect the aorta, so a syndromic. And those are diseases like Marfan syndrome, Loewy's Dietz syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, vascular mm-hmm. type. Those type of syndromes, which have features, and that makes up a minority, less than half of patients with a genetic aortopathy.
0: Oh, we, interesting. We're okay. finding
1: more and more that have syndromes. sorry, that have familial aneurysm disorders. So it can run in a grandparent and a parent and a child but they don't have features, so we call those non-syndromic familial thoracic aortic aneurysm diseases, and under the same big category or big umbrella, we might call these all hereditary thoracic aortic disorders, or HTADs, Mm. so there's a big umbrella, and some are syndromic, and some are non-syndromic, and we're learning more about these every year because of research by geneticists and others discovering new genes based on families like this one gotcha. and this person might have a previously mm-hmm. undiagnosed gene
0: so interesting The most commonly these are non-syndromic uh causes for these aneurysms in these pa- in these patients is what we're learning and what we're discovering
1: exactly okay so i mean i've been at at washington university my whole Professional career, so I began here in 1991, and we started a Marfan clinic here in 1993 or so. And for 25 years, early on, we anybody who had an aneurysm in the aorta, ace in the ascending aorta, whether they had all the features of Marfan syndrome or not, if uh-huh. they had scoliosis or mild features, or we would label people Marfan syndrome based on criteria that were available at that time. Okay, and. The criteria keeps changing as we learn more about what that condition is, and learn much more about what are related disorders which may share some phenotypic features, but have now a new gene. So certain are genetic. Hmm. And it used to be that my patient population of aortic aneurysm disorders, this big pie chart, was filled up with Marfan patients. And then when other genes became available, we started relabeling those previously diagnosed patients is now Lowe's dietz syndrome or other related disorders. And now we're seeing many more new patients that have familial thoracic aneurysm disease, and the gene is not a syndromic one. It's a non-syndromic one. And the challenge of those cases are because they don't have outward features which are recognizable, the, the patient with one of those disorders presents usually with something like, I had an aortic dissection or I had an aneurysm uh-huh. because nobody would know to screen them yeah. unless it was running in the family. Mm-hmm.
0: I yeah. know I was, I was reading about that subject in that uh, um, presentation that like 5% or less of people with an aneurysm, thoracic aneurysm, are symptomatic. So most of these people are asymptomatic and then they present you know, with this you know, catastrophic event or sometimes they just even die immediately without really even making it to care.
1: That's correct. So in conditions like Marfan and Lois Dietz and vascular, there's Danlos syndrome where the patient may present with lens dislocation. So let's let's take Marfan syndrome. Somebody might have lens dislocation or scoliosis or pneumothorax or pectus deformities, uh, tall stature, hyperflexibility, and they're different from other family members. A parent usually will say, like, what do they have? And with the Internet now, they can Google syndromes and symptoms put some of those features in and these words come up and oftentimes a parent will be the first one to suspect this and come to a pediatrician or an obstetrician or back doctor mm-hmm. orthopedist and say i'm concerned my child has this and they say i think you're right so anyway so often those sort of outward features when they're present can make a disease like marfinson are recognizable at a, a stage where treatment can begin and so, an echocardiogram or a scan can be done recognizing the size of the aorta, and then we can treat with medications, follow, and then recommend preventative aortic surgery before a catastrophe strikes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In a patient who, you know, there's no prior family history that was recognizable and they didn't know they had an aneurysm, an aneurysm of the thoracic aorta is asymptomatic, as you said, unless it gets to be so large, enormous inside, it pushes on something. Roads into something, or frankly, typically, dissects,
2: mm-hmm. or
1: or rarely ruptures, and then that causes either death or immediate presentation. Yeah. But in that patient who has a you know unexplained thoracic aortic aneurysm or dissection, whether it's known to have a familial component or not, what's been learned from examining large families, so. For inst- uh, that there's a very strong genetic component. Okay. So what that means is, is, and what's been learned is is from these family studies, is if I have a patient who is, let's say, 40 years old or something, and they don't have any syndromic features of an aneurysm disorder, but they have a dilated ascending aorta, uh-huh. clearly outside the normal range for their age and size and sex, if I screen every first-degree relative, so that person or the proband... Uh-huh. Parents, siblings, and children. Okay. So everybody connected by one to that person with an echogram if it's in the aortic reader ascending aorta or a scan if it's higher up. Okay. Twenty percent of the time another first degree relative will also have thoracic aortic aneurysm disease. Wow. That's high. That's that exactly ton. high. Wow. And and um I'm Excited for your interest because you may have said, I was not aware of that. And that's what we're finding much of in in the community. And that's part of the message is to screen first-degree relatives for familial thoracic aortic andrews disease, non-syndromic, because you can save a life. And and many times, that sort of initial screening will then make us say, let's do genetic testing in this family. Mm. So many times, we go right for the genes in younger patients with unexplained aneurysm disease, and if we found a mutation or a variant in a gene associated with thoracic aortic aneurysm disease, then we can test all first-degree relatives to see who else is a carrier of the same gene, and then we can image them if they're a carrier. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Or we can find no gene, which is more common now, because not every gene has been discovered. We test everybody, and anybody who's found to have an abnormal aorta is followed for life. And those who aren't, we follow every so many years because we don't know what the penetrance is in every family. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of interest and challenge in, in these sort of patients, but uh, it can make a difference. Gotcha.
0: So for our patient, you know, being young, 30 years old, you probably opt to test her for these, you know, these genetic disorders. Test her for Marfan's. Mm-hmm. Test her for vascular ehlers Maybe even Lowe's Dietz or some of these other described genes that are found in the familial thoracic aortic aneurysm, yes. so and then use that gene that's found in her, Well, hopefully it's positive for her, and then use that same gene and then screen her family exactly. for that gene.
1: That's exactly right. So taking this woman and you say, well, how would you approach this person when you see her? Well, I mean, the information's there. You had a vertebral dissection, FMD diagnosed, and a type A dissection. So then looking at her, as a cardiologist, I would Say, let's look at you holistically. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to look at your eyes. I'm going to look in your mouth. I'm going to look at your skeleton. I'm going to look at your skin. I'm going to look at you like a dysmorphologist. And if a cardiologist isn't trained in that manner, this person should see a medical geneticist. Mm-hmm. And uh, many many of them should because we're not trained in that. And it's just my good fortune to interact with enough people. You get used to seeing people in a certain way. But it, it, a medical geneticist is, can be critical in this person's evaluation. So, again... To look, at, are the eyes wide set? Are the sclera bluish? Look in the mouth. Are the, are the teeth crowded? Is there a tall palate? Is the uvula normal or is it bifid or broad? Mm-hmm. Features that go along with the TGF beta signaling pathway abnormality in the family of Louis Dietz syndrome. What does the skin look like? Is it soft and velvety, translucent, easily visible veins, easy bruising, Mm -hmm. features that go along with lois Dietz syndrome or vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? Do they bruise easily? There are a lot of spontaneous hemorrhages. What do those look like? How tall are they? Are they tall for the family? Are they proportionate in their height with their arm span and, and length and leg size and feet size? Are they flexible or not? What, do they have stretch marks on the skin? Do they have pectus deformity or scoliosis, things like that? Just simple mm-hmm. things that you can do very quickly by just putting a gown on and looking somebody critically. And then, so those are the features of syndromic disorders that can be along with Marfan or low disease or vascular DS. And then look at the imaging that was just done with the CT scan. Okay. There's a dissection present. So we see the whole aorta. You can see that. Typically in these disorders – the aorta is dilated before it dissects. Now, with vascular EDS, it can be normal size before it dissects. But with Lowe's Dietz, and Marfan, typically it's enlarged. Marfan, much more than Lowe's Dietz. And, and the size is different depending upon which gene is, but there's variability there.
0: And I just want to be clear. So on the imaging, you'd be able to tell that it had been dilated prior to the dissection.
1: Yes, you can. You can't, you can't measure it directly. You can't anticipate exactly what the size was prior um, because it does, it expands with the dissection. When like yeah. The order dissects the, because of the false lumen. Uh-huh. Uh, the entire diameter increases by maybe thirty percent on sure. average. But you can see if it's normal. Like okay. if Somebody you with know, somebody with a you know hypertensive cocaine-related type B dissection often the order is not dilated. It's just sheer stress.
2: Sure. With okay. aneurysm
1: disorders, usually it expands and then dissects. Mm. Okay. And uh, some are more aggressive than others, and we can talk about that. But different than just looking at the dissection and the size of the aorta, the time of the dissection, you can see things like, is there arterial tortuosity? So in branch vessels, like cervical arteries that come off, branch vessels, subclavian arteries, aorta down the belly, Mm-hmm. Branch vessels to the legs are they tortuous and ectatic? Do they curl around mm-hmm. 360 V curves and things like that? Those features are consistent with disorders like Lois deep syndrome. Arterial tortuosity is a dominant hallmark feature. Now you can see tortuosity in Marfan syndrome, but it's, it's usually less severe. So when you see it quite okay. dramatic, it makes you think of one of these other disorders. If you see enlargement or aneurysms or other things away from the root, that's often in another disorder than Marfan syndrome, which is typical to the root of the okay. or the proximal ascending aorta, the sinus it does, of Valsalva. Yeah. Okay. Whereas Louise or may show enlargement downstream as well, and then features like in the skeleton, is there dural ectasia and enlargement of the lumbosacral spinal canal in, in the distal aspects? Because of abnormalities of the elastic tissue in the dura lining the spinal column, causing it to expand over time. So dural ectasia often caused, are called things like lumbosacral cysts or tarlov cysts or sacral cysts, mm-hmm. okay. some other imaging features, bone or arterial can make you think there's an underlying syndromic disorder present. I follow. And some patients have lots of features that are easy to recognize that everyone, you and I, would easily recognize this is Marfan syndrome. They have a classic example, or it's Lois-Dietz syndrome with a classic example with wide-set eyes and tortuous arteries and craniofacial features and a biped uvula. But more often, the features are subtle or unrecognized, and they're not as many as you might have thought. Mm. So it does. it is nuanced or it's a non-syndromic. Okay. So that's why it's important to look widely and screen widely. And then what we typically do as far as genetic testing goes is um, we use a you know reputable company, and it's usually a swab of the buccal mucosa or they spit in a cup and it's sent to the lab or it's a blood draw, depending. And it takes about six weeks to eight weeks to get the results back. And we used to do sequentially. Let's test... Marfan gene FBN1. Let's test TGFBR1 and two, and then as more genes have been um, added to this, now we have anywhere from seven to fifteen genes that are known to be associated, depending on what you believe. Um, but let's say fifteen genes or so,
0: uh-huh.
1: somewhere in that realm. Um, you test them all in one panel, yeah. and and you do you know sequencing to see if there's a you know change in the gene. Or, and you can do duplication, deletion, genetic testing to see if there's pieces missing or added that can cause a harmful, harmful change.
0: And that sounds like maybe that evolution came from that knowledge that there's other types of these disorders. And so maybe first you were sequentially screening, thinking that Marfan is the most common cause. And then as time has evolved, now it's like, well, it's no longer the most common cause. So we're going to shotgun for these, you know, 7 to 15 genes that we know are common in exactly. hopes that one of them will be positive. That's
1: exactly right. I think it's it's probably more automated. It's probably more cost-effective for the companies to do that. Just like in the old days, you might have ordered a potassium level, now you order a CMP-15 or whatever, uh-huh. and you get all of them for the same cost. It just runs through the columns. So yeah. you can kind of do it like that. Um, but what's interesting is... is um, the majority, of, so when someone has a, whether it's, uh, if especially non-syndromic, um, we don't know which gene is involved for the majority right now. Okay. And, and that doesn't mean it's not genetic. In other words, it's often genetic. It's we just we don't know the gene. We just don't know the gene. And uh, so there's a lot of interest in collecting families like this and, and uh, sending samples to researchers or doing the research here. With regards to new discoveries and uh, these sort of disorders, familial aneurysm syndromes, um, 15 years ago, we knew about FBN1 and Marfan syndrome.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, In 2005, we learned about TGFBR1 and TGFBR2 leading to classical or uh, lois Dietz syndrome. And new genes are being discovered based on knowledge on these signaling pathways. In other words, when they, with more information learned about the TGFBR, the, the TGF receptor and then and ligands at light five downstream through. signaling, SMAD two, SMAD 3, SMAD 4, and then cofactors and all these pathways you can think about if, if you have an alphabet of things that are taking place from A to Z inside you know whether it be on the receptor of a cell or all the way to the nucleus and then after transcription Uh and anything that could go wrong with any of these things that help that process either directly or indirectly or cofactors they may impact that final pathway at at various levels some associating with other things that we might recognize and some not Mm -hmm. so that's what's really interesting is is and new discoveries impact that pathway so as more is learned about these pathways more testing can be done to see, oh, let's look at the mutation in this gene, which codes this protein Uh or this uh, enzyme that impacts that signaling pathway. And voila, there's a new thing that can identify this in families.
0: I think what's also interesting on there, one of my reading is that um, regarding this fibrillin-1 for Marfan syndrome, is that it also seems to play within this role of TGFR signaling pathway. So if my understanding of the historical, like, discoveries are correct, you know, fibrillin 1 is discovered, and it's thought like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's a disorder within, you know, the extracellular matrix, the fibrillin is disordered, and so then it degenerates quicker. But then there's some other signaling that, oh, well, actually the fibrillin being disordered then results in an increase in this TGFR beta signaling pathway, which results in more metallic which leads to increased degradation. So, in fact, it was all part of the same cascade system. Whereas, I don't know, maybe we just got lucky in discovering fibrillin-1, and then actually it's impacting this cascade where most of the action is happening.
1: Exactly. I think it's a, um, you know, when I talk to patients and families about these, uh, when, when someone is diagnosed with a disorder like Marfan or Lois-Dietz or um, where TGF beta signaling pathway or products seems to impact that, what I say is, is really there's never been a better time in our history to have one of these disorders because, um, whereas you know, 30 years ago, I mean, fibrillin was, a, uh, and FBN one was something in 1991 was the discovery of that gene. So we're uh-huh. in its infancy. And, um, and as you mentioned early on, it was a, thought to be a structural protein and it was just weak tissue and tissues de- degenerated and aneurysms formed. And that was, that was what it was. It was just a weak tissue. And only through you know mouse models, initially, mm-hmm. where you could uh, you know change a gene uh, and uh, reproduce or recapitulate the features, the phenotypic features, you could study these sort of abnormalities. Where it was learned that uh, fibrillin, fibrillin one, the protein encoded by FBN1, the gene, abnormal in Martin syndrome, when it was uh, when it wouldn't bind normally mm-hmm. in uh, deficient mice, mice with deficiencies in the uh, fbn1 and uh that led to this uh, overactivation of tgf beta signaling and then all the mediators downstream were upregulated. and so the theory the theory was that uh, that signaling pathway perturbations in that signaling pathway led to the downstream events like bones growing too long from from a, you know, something was telling mm-hmm. those bones keep growing and uh, alveoli weren't septating normally they form kind of bully. and uh and hence
0: the pneumothoraces.
1: Hence, hence, risk of pneumothorax, exactly, and it, uh, you know, affected the way muscles were bundled and uh, making thinner appearance. And people are interested in why young young Marfan patients don't have as much fat. You know, there's interest in this, signaling. Like, "What what is the mechanism for that?" Because you could say, "Well, maybe you could harness something like that for good for others," yeah. you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But um, and then that led to interest in in uh, well. If TGF-beta, so you can measure TGF-beta, you can measure downstream signaling pathways, SMAD pathways, and things like that. You can measure these events downstream to say these are this is what's going on in this disease. Then you could have targets like a, like starting with neutralizing antibodies. So let's block TGF-beta purely with an antibody directed against it, and show that will prevent mitral valve prolapse and prevent emphysema in mice and prevent aortic enlargement and show that the tissue um, pathologically looked like a normal mouse, Hmm. even though they carried the Marfan gene, giving great hope for people and leading to trials of these sort of agents, which in pill form can also block TGF-beta, however incompletely. And uh, so far, at least, uh, what's been learned is a lot of interesting science and biology which will probably impact future treatments but at present we don't have a we don't have the magic bullet to cure mm. these disorders at present but i think most importantly is is what the models have shown us is that there's a lot of things moving and so a lot of potential targets that that might change therapy in the future that's why i say it's the best time even though mm. we don't have a cure right now there's so many scientists researchers geneticists cardiologists every, so many people involved in this surgeons interested in the biology of the aorta that's been impacted by these genetics. Uh, It makes it very, very interesting. Gotcha.
0: So for this patient, coming back to her, um, I'll say, when I saw her, she was in ICU intubated. So at least from my exam, she didn't appear to have a marfonoid habitus. I was mostly suspecting that this was not, this was a non syndromic, you know, if anything, familial uh, aneurysm, um, familial thoracic aortic aneurysm. Uh, condition. So let's just like play what if hypothetical situation. So say we screen her and her family and they find that they have, you know, they carry one of these genes. And so she has a sister, say that she's also a carrier and she has a mildly enlarged, you know, thoracic aorta. I read that there has been some use and some evidence for the use in beta blockers and also aldosterone receptor uh, blockers, or sorry, ARBs. Um, in the use and preventing progression of these uh, of these aneurysms, what are your thoughts about the use of those two classes of drugs?
1: So, um, Andrew, the the, the we certainly there's a lot of animal model data, mice data predominantly, and then there's people data. And um, what we've learned is is um, in let's let's use Marfan syndrome, even though this person doesn't have it first. Okay, that's where that's where the most information is in marfan syndrome in the earliest studies of uh, from johns hopkins looked at marfan patients treated with beta blockers versus no treatment and small trials demonstrated a slower growth rate in aggregate in beta blocker treated patients and there were some fewer aortic dissections but it wasn't entirely protective and and it was really based on the anti-impulse you know, anti-adrenergic effect of beta blockers. So lessening heart rate, lessening pulse pressure rise or the force of contraction in of the shear sheer stress. Exactly, right the sheer stress in the aorta. So lessen that by beta blockade and, and it might protect the aorta over a lifetime. So that's really the bedrock treatment for aneurysm disorders. And, and we had applied that to anybody's aorta who is larger than normal mm. with that philosophy, even though there's no proof in other conditions other
0: than, other than Martin syndrome, oh, and that's based
1: on pretty small data. Okay. Okay. So, and and there's that's really all we have on that. Small mm-hmm. numbers. So that's kind of the background. ARB drugs, like losartan and Erbisartan and other sartans, have been shown to block TGF-beta signaling. And that's been established for some time, and that was in the kidney literature. They're kind of antifibrotic agents, mm-hmm. and that mechanism is felt to be by antagonism of TGF-beta. And other features like lessening MMPs and things like that. Um, so those were tried in the Marfan mouse, and, uh, and they're curative in Marfan hmm. mice. Really? And so if you're a Marfan mouse, you have a lot of options. Okay. That's a good thing.
0: If you're a Marfan mouse, you I like where this is options. going. Okay.
1: Um, because other agents, which also interfere with certain things in these pathways, like statin drugs, uh-huh. anti-inflammatory drugs like a statin, uh, anti-MMP drug like tetracycline or doxycycline, which blocks MMPs, yeah. been used in abdominal aneurysm disease based on that mechanism, can really make a difference if you're a Marfan mouse. Okay. So. So those trials were then used in people with Marfan syndrome, and here at Wash U, we were part of the Pediatric Heart Network, uh, NHLBI, Marfan Foundation-sponsored trial, Uh, and it was published in the New England Journal uh, about three or four years ago now, Okay. and looking at this, uh, Atenolol versus Losartan in the Marfan patients, and uh, it showed really no difference between those two agents. So... And uh, several other studies of sartans versus beta blockers, and some with beta blockers, have been performed. And most show no significant difference whether you use a beta blocker or a sartan drug. Uh, and those are going to be compiled into a meta-analysis to try to understand whether certain combinations might be better than one agent um, And and it's theorized that maybe that's not the most potent way to block TGF-beta, and Mm. that's why there's not a difference, Um, but still helpful. I mean, aortas grew very slowly in both arms, which is important for patients. So I think we have drugs to use. So what about this patient? Anybody Mm -hmm. after an aortic dissection, though, should be on a beta blocker. That's well established. It lessens stress and strain on aorta over time, lessens risk of later aneurysm formation and later events so beta blocker right. really should be used in all patients after an aortic dissection and this patient had that her sister if you said well now we know a gene we don't know the gene but let's say there's a let's just say theoretically there's a mutation in a gene mm-hmm. and not just a variant of unknown significance a known harmful change in a gene and the sister has the same harmful change and the sister has an enlarged aorta modestly mm-hmm. let's say not a size threshold where we're going to recommend surgery then yes i would treat the sister uh, knowing that unless it was fbn1 we don't have any data that says this is going to impact your long-term aortic growth history in Loi's deets tgfbr1 and 2 there are mouse models in that now uh-huh. so you can show again remarkable results with arv drugs but again that's not in people so you'd say well and, and someone with a Lowe's Dietz or TGFBR1 or 2 or TGFB2 or TGFB3 or SMAD3. These are all genes that associate with lois Dietz syndrome 1 through 5.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I typically use both drugs when I treat patients without dissection. After dissection, I I use those together. But pre Pre-dissection, just following aneurysms, I usually use beta blocker and ARB both because it's a more aggressive disorder. And I just share a decision with the patient or family and say, we really don't know, but I'd like like you to be on this because it might benefit you based on what we know from animal models. So if the person's willing to take it and most tolerate it fine, no matter what their starting blood pressure is. Uh And there is mouse model now. Uh, being developed on vascular ehlers Syndrome as well. So I think we're going to learn a lot more about these. Some of the other mutations, like ACTA-2, and uh, which is the most common variety of non-syndromic familial thoracic aortic aneurysm disease, um, we don't yet have data on those as far as medicines. Gotcha.
0: Now, maybe you could comment about screening modalities, as far as I can tell there's multiple ways to screen you no know, first degree relatives and I'm talking about imaging modalities now. You know you can do transthoracic echoes, you can do transesophageal echoes, CTAs, and coronary, you know, sorry, CT angios and then MRAs as well. Is there a preference within your practice in your in your practice for any of those?
1: There is a preference. The um, some of the diseases affect the aortic root predominantly <clears throat> and in in most people, we can see the aortic root and approximately sending the aorta adequately with an echocardiogram. So in patients that are not known to carry a disease, so it's like a screen then. So we don't know, let's say we don't know the gene in the family, so we can't test that family member to see, do you carry the same gene? Mm-hmm. We just know that they are at risk because they have a family member with the disease. Then what, I usually do an echocardiogram, but I have the caveat is if the echocardiogram is not done here, I cannot guarantee that the sonographer or the reader is going to pay attention to the entire ascending aorta. Uh And if it's not well seen, then we haven't screened them adequately. So in that situation, it's probably better to do an MR study or a CT study. And I really use more MR, even though it takes longer, um, because there's no radiation exposure. So they just avoid that. If if they don't have that available, then I'll do a CT scan. Okay. And and so we do a one-time screen for first-degree relatives of the person. And, and what age is is too young? Too you know, if, if somebody has a dissection, what age uh, is uh, for that presentation? Should you stop thinking about it? Well, uh-huh. Probably never. Uh, I have a patient that uh, that I followed for ascending thoracic aortic aneurysm, no known family history who um, came to see me in his mid-70s, early 70s with a 5.3-centimeter ascending aorta. And I said, you don't meet the guidelines for surgery. Your surgery is 5.5 or greater. You're uh-huh. Let's just watch. And he dissected his ascending aorta within a year or two. Uh-huh. And uh, when I saw him back after a successful surgery, I noted that he was then scanned all the way down. And he had enlarged iliac arteries as well. And so I said, you have something more. Uh, and so we did gene testing for him. He was found to have an act two mutation, uh, so a familial non syndromic aneurysm disorder and uh, his first presentation was seventy five or seventy four years old when he dissected. obviously he had an aneurysm, yeah. but that's so that finding for him because of these other features, I tested other family members and we found subsequent two generations with thoracic aortic, with the same mutation, one of which has a modest aortic enlargement one who's normal.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So it does tell you how important it is to look widely, and I don't think there's ever an age range where you say, stop looking in the family. Mm -hmm. So first of all, you ask, how do you screen? If you can find a gene, so genetic testing is covered for a younger person, I would do it. Okay. And if that gene is found, a mutation is found in a gene, then I would test every first degree relative. Parents siblings, children for the same gene. If anybody else was found to have the same gene, then they are screened widely depending upon which gene. Some okay. genes we screen from head to pelvis because aneurysms can occur through the brain to the pelvis. And others, like Marfan, we just screen the chest because it just predominantly involves aortic root, root. Okay. at least initially.
0: So and just in like your kind of screening algorithm, you first try to identify the gene within your you know, your proband, the the presenting patient, and then upon identifying that gene, screen, family members, preferably for that gene. And if they're positive for the gene, then image them. And if they're negative for the gene, don't need to image them.
1: That's correct.
0: About surgical repair, so as you had mentioned with this uh, 72-year-old male, he presented, you know, with a a, uh, dilated aorta 5.2 centimeters, and generally they're not treated until they're 5.5. Do you intervene at an earlier stage for some of these syndromic um, thoracic aortic aneurysms, like if they have Marfan syndrome or vascular Ehlers-Danlos? Are you inclined to repair their aneurysm earlier?
1: Yes. Um, in some of the disorders, it's fairly well worked out. In most of the disorders, we don't really know what the appropriate size is for every individual. I think that's the safest thing to say. In Marfan syndrome, aortic dissection is uncommon when the aorta is less than 5 centimeters. It can occur, and we think that uh, for most, 5 centimeters or greater is the size threshold for which prophylactic aortic root replacement is recommended. So in Marfan, 5 centimeters. The caveat would be if the aorta grows rapidly, which is three to five millimeters in a year, that would be very rapid growth. Or if in that family, aortic dissection occurs early or at a smaller aortic size. So aggressive gene phenotype. So Mm -hmm. something like that, we might say four and a half centimeters or greater would be big enough. And there's never a line in the sand. So for many patients with Martin syndrome, we pick a time when it's convenient, school break, Christmas break. Let's do it now so I can do something three months from now. Mm -hmm. And my aorta is 4.8 or 4.9. I really want to do it now. I'm tired of waiting. I'm so worried. Mm -hmm. Or we just wait. So um, it really just depends. But around five. In Loewy's Dietz syndrome, um, not everybody's the same. And that's the challenge of this. When it was first described in 2005, it was the tip of the iceberg. And... Um, the you know, patients that had easily recognizable severe phenotype, you know, craniosynostosis, club feet, cleft palate, cleft lip, bifid uvula, hypertelorism, you know, mm-hmm. very severe phenotype. You know, and some presented in infancy with aneurysms. Some presented with dissections. Even one of my patients dissected under four centimeters. So mm-hmm. the initial papers it was recommended four centimeters or greater. And I sent many patients when we re-diagnosed their Marfan syndrome as Lowe's Heat syndrome to surgery when it was under 5 centimeters, even though we had been watching them, waiting for the 5 because we thought they had an unusual Marfan. I see. Okay. So 4 centimeters. With more data and more collection, more worldwide um, collaboration, um, and, and much of this comes from big registries. We're involved in the Montelcino Aorta Consortium. Which is a very large registry uh, run by Diana Milowitz and others. Um, we see that certain features might predict a more aggressive course, like arterial tortuosity or marked craniofacial features, kind of like what we saw. Hmm. But other patients have more minor features and a much less aggressive phenotype. Okay. And we wait. So it's somewhere between four and four and a half. So that's the ballpark for Louise D, Certainly by four and a half, and some we still would do around four. So somewhere in that spread. If they have Lowe's Dietz, and there's five genes now with Lowe's Dietz, and TGFB2 and TGFB3 are probably less aggressive, so that might be four and a half to five. Uh-huh. So there's some wiggle room in there, but we don't have large numbers to help us. Yeah. With non-syndromic, we really don't know. Some of it's based on very, very limited data sets from small series, and some are very aggressive. Myosin light chain mm. kinase can have dissections at aortic sizes, which are very small. So, but that's based on limited information. So we don't really know. Mm. So certainly in, in when it's familial, non-marfan, it, many times it's four and a half or greater. And that's probably a safe number to think about for most, but it, it depends.
0: Some work and some more research to be done in there and kind of driving down further what, at what stage to be intervening from there.
1: You asked about therapies and things, and, um, and yeah. you know, you, you asked, you know, what's in, the, what's in the pipeline? You know, what do we know? Yes. Um, well, um, there's a lot of interest in this, and um, I'm not privy to all the, um, you know, the latest information, but I do know that there are small molecules which, that, which may impact these signaling pathways differently uh-huh. than uh, the... And the, the Sartan drugs, it may block other mediators uh, in these pathways that are altogether different than just the blocking TGF beta, mm-hmm. which, which may play a, a very important role. Um, at least they do in mouse models or in cell cultures or in tissue cultures of, of uh, vascular tissue uh-huh. in patients with these diso- or, or simulated disorders or genetic abnormalities. And I think what's going to happen next is is more more research in the animal looking Mm -hmm. at this and then probably more trials in people um, because it's necessary. Patients with these conditions continue to have aneurysmal growth and aren't protected fully by these medications. So, and and they're a very motivated group um, for therapy and the scientists are only making more discoveries. So I think that's an incredibly exciting time. Um, to be involved in this, so we can help our patients.
0: Yeah, I could imagine that. Well, with this better, this greater understanding of the signaling pathways involving TGFR beta, um, that there could be some development of like a monoclonal antibody to then work and impact on numerous areas of that of that pathway. So, I or guess we'll or what... other parallel
1: pathways, or other um, pathways that uh, impact that that um, have not yet even been discovered. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's a great, a great time to be involved in this, in this area because I think the care for patients is only going to get better.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that about wraps up the kind of questions that I want to discuss with you. And I think it's been a, a very informative and enlightening discussion. So thank you so much for letting me come by and talk with you.
1: Andrew, I enjoyed speaking to you very much. Thanks for your interest in this topic. Um, you're only, we're only going to be hearing more about genetic aortopathies. Mm-hmm. So, I appreciate the time. All right, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is co sponsored by MedPage Today and by the Division of Medical Education at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, who sung Night Owl on their album Directionless EP, I've Used for My Theme Music. It is used under a Creative Commons license, Attribution 3.0.